I think one of the saddest things about Good Friday in Australia is the millions of people who will just treat this as a holiday. I heard on the radio this morning somebody talking about this weekend as the super duper holiday weekend because we have two days of public holiday with no idea of the meaning. Now there will be many people in Australia who don't know the meaning of Easter, who have no idea of what this day is about. But sadly, there will be plenty who do know that this is the day that Jesus offered his life for us and Easter Sunday is the day he rose again. But they will give no thought to that today. Instead for them it will be a day just of celebration and happiness and fun. And so I want to thank you first of all for putting this time aside to come and worship God and to remember with us the meaning of this day. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in our country, despite the fact that it's such a post-Christian country, our Christian holidays are still observed and we have time today to put everything else aside and just be quiet and concentrate on the meaning of this day. Father, we pray that you will open our hearts and our minds to receive the understanding that you want to give us today. Give us a fresh look at what this meant for Jesus and also what it means for us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Now I want to go back to last night. Actually in Jewish counting from sunset last night was Friday. In our counting of course it's Thursday. So I want to look at Jesus and the disciples sharing together the Passover feast. The Jews had done this for the best part of 1500 years, give or take a glitch or two along the way obeying God's command to keep that feast and remember how he brought them out of Egypt. So let's just go back for a minute to that original exodus. The Jews had been slaves in Egypt for some time and then God promised through Moses it was time to bring them out of Egypt, to set them free. He would take them as his people, he would take them to the promised land and there they would live as his people in freedom. But of course there was a snag because they were Pharaoh's slave labour force and so he had no desire to let them go. And so after a number of plagues which caused a lot of disturbance in the land but still didn't change Pharaoh's mind, God said I'll send one last plague. The angel of death, the destroyer, will go through every household in the land because the plagues did not just affect the Egyptians, they affected the Jews and anybody else who was living there at the time. And so God said, the angel of death, the destroyer, will go through each house in the land and the firstborn son this night will die and also the firstborn of the animals as well. But as God does, he made a way out. And so he said to Moses, tell the people that they are to take a lamb, kill the lamb or a kid, goat, take the lamb and kill it, take some of the blood and daub the blood around the doorposts of your house. And then when the angel of death comes to pass through the land, 
I will protect you. The angel of death will pass over your house and I instead, I will protect you. What a prophecy of Jesus. The lamb without blemish, without stain, slain for us. The blood, our protection. The blood to cover us and be our protection. Everything in the Passover is a prophecy of Jesus. And then God said to Moses, tell the people they are to take the meat and they're to have a hasty meal. They're to eat it with their staff in their hand, shoes on their feet, ready to go. Because as soon as the angel of death has passed through the land, Pharaoh will want you out of Egypt as quickly as possible. And so it was to be a hastily prepared, hastily eaten meal. The meat was to be barbecued, no slow cooking. Barbecue it because it cooks quickly. And no yeast in the bread because yeast takes a long time to prove if you've ever made bread it takes hours. No, it only takes a few minutes though to mix together flour and oil and water and then if you've got a hot stone, put that um, on a hot stone and it will cook in minutes. And so this was a hasty meal, prepared hastily and eaten hastily with some bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of their slavery in Egypt. And God said, you are to keep that feast every year and you are to remember what I did for you in Egypt. And so they did. And so Jesus and his disciples on the last night of Jesus' earthly life kept that feast together. Now it was pretty much as God had originally instituted it except that they'd added just a few things to it along the way. And one of the things was In reading their scriptures, they'd come across these verses in Exodus where God made some promises to the people through Moses. There are more than four promises, but they liked the number four, so they took these four promises and they felt that they were really important. This was the nub of what the Exodus was all about. God promised, I will bring you out of Egypt, I will set you free from the yoke of slavery, I will redeem you with mighty acts and I will take you as my own people. And they decided they would incorporate that into the feast with four cups of wine. And so Jesus as the host of the feast began. And the first thing he did was to take a cup, there will be a jug of wine beside it, fill it with wine, pass it around for everybody to drink and as they drank, they remembered that first promise, I will bring you out of Egypt. Now how prophetic is that? Because we have been brought out of the kingdom of darkness into God's marvellous light. And we can't do that by ourselves any more than those ancient Jews could have got themselves out of Egypt. It was God who had to intervene. It was God who had to tell them about the sacrifice and he had to do the work of getting them out. And it's exactly the same for us. It's a wonderful prophecy of the work that Jesus was to do. So that began the ceremony. Then after that first cup, They spent a while remembering what the purpose of this was, retelling the story of the Exodus. There was a liturgy that went with it. There were prayers and there were readings, there were statements, creeds and so on. Then when they had done that, Jesus took the cup again, filled it again from the jug a second time and passed it around and this time the people remembered the second promise. 
I will set you free from the yoke of slavery. Because when the Jews walked out of Egypt, while they were freed men and women, they were still in a mindset of slavery. They'd spent all their lives being told by their overseers what to do and how to do it. Now they had to learn to think as free men and women who were going to be in their own land, running their own lives, planting their own crops and so on. And that takes a whole change of direction and thought in your life. And so it is for us. Because for so many of us, even when we come out of the kingdom of darkness, that's the way we've lived our lives until we've come to Christ. And it takes God to set us free into a new mindset of how we live as free men and women in his kingdom. Remember Jesus' words, if the Son of Man, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And we need him to set us free, to change our mindset from being slaves to Satan to instead serving God. Now when they drank that second cup, that was the time then when they ate the food. They had the lamb, just as God had instituted originally. They had the unleavened bread. Now both the lamb The lamb was a prophecy of Jesus, but what about the unleavened bread? By the time of Jesus, the idea of yeast had come to stand for sin. And here is bread made without yeast, reminding us again of Jesus, the one and only without sin. A wonderful picture of Jesus in the unleavened bread. And so they ate the meat and the bread and they ate the other things. There were a few other dishes by this time on the table so they ate that. Now at some time during the actual meal and I think probably towards the end of it Jesus took one of those flat loaves and he gave thanks and he broke it. He would have torn it apart and offered it to uh, the disciples to eat. Now I don't think there was anything unusual for the host of the meal to do that. But he startled his disciples because he changed the liturgy. He changed the ritual. They knew exactly what happened at a Passover feast. They'd celebrated one every year since they were born. Everybody knew the words. Everybody knew how it all went. And suddenly, here's Jesus saying something different. Because before he passed the bread around for them to eat, he said, This is my body. This is my body. Take it and eat it. And each time you do it, do it to remember me. Now the Passover was a feast of remembrance. They were looking back, remembering what God had done. Here is Jesus now changing it. Don't remember what God did 1,500 years ago. Remember what I am about to do. And so they finished the actual meal. And then Jesus filled the cup a third time. Now this is the cup. I will redeem you, says God. This is the cup of redemption. But at this particular time, during the Passover feast, the host would raise the cup and he would pronounce a prayer of blessing and thanksgiving. Blessing God as the Lord and creator of the universe and the one who has provided us with all that we need. And this time again, 
before he passed that cup around to his disciples, Jesus changed the liturgy. Now this is already a cup with tremendous prophetic meaning about Jesus because I will redeem you reminds us of Peter's words we're not redeemed with silver and gold but with the precious blood of Christ. And so that's the cup that Jesus took, changed the liturgy because before he passed it to his disciples he said new words. He said, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement between God and man in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it to remember me. So Jesus is changing the Passover to a new service of remembrance. But there was still another surprise in store for the disciples that night. They hadn't quite finished yet. There was a fourth cup, a fourth time that the cup was filled. Now, the Passover itself was to remember what God had done, the best part of 1500 years ago, but it was also prophetic. It was looking forward because everything in that Passover meal was preparing them for the coming of Jesus and what Jesus was going to do on the cross. Sorry, I should have moved this on. So the Passover looked backwards and it looked forward. But it was fulfilled in Jesus. Now Jesus is changing it into another feast, another celebration that looks back to his crucifixion but also has a prophetic charm because that fourth cup is the one to remember the promise I will take you as my own. Sorry. I will take you as my own, God said to his people. That's the promise a bridegroom makes at the wedding. That's a covenant promise. That's a bridegroom saying to his bride, I love you. I want to take you as my own. I will give my life for you. I will serve you. I will do nothing but seek your welfare the whole of your life. Everything I do will be for your benefit because I love you and I want to take you as my own. They are beautiful words. When it came to that fourth cup, I don't know whether Jesus filled it or not. I don't know whether the disciples drank it. It doesn't tell us. But what it does say is Jesus passed on drinking that fourth cup. Now, there are two reasons why. The first one is what he said to us. He said, I will not drink wine again until I drink it with you anew in the kingdom of God. So... Every time we have communion, sitting on this table is that fourth cup of wine and this is prophetic. We are looking forward to the day when you and I and every other believer will drink that wine with Jesus at the marriage supper of the Lamb. When 
That last promise, I will take you as my own, will be completely fulfilled. We are God's people now. But what a further meaning to that. When Jesus as the bride, as the the groom, the lamb, takes the church as his bride. So that fourth cup sits on our communion table every time we take communion. We not only remember back to what Jesus did for us, we look forward to that day when in the new kingdom of heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, we will all share together in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But there is another cup. Now, the Jews understood about this cup as they read their scriptures. They read about another cup. Let me read to you how Jeremiah describes it. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. When they drink it, they will stagger and go mad. Because of the sword, I will send among them. The cup of God's wrath. Jesus left that last Passover feast and I'm convinced that was intended to be the very last Passover because it was fulfilled in his cross and resurrection. He did not drink that fourth cup of wine. That fourth cup reminded them of God's promise to protect them. As the bridegroom Loving his bride. The bridegroom is promising to protect his bride. Jesus went out into that night without his father's protection. And he went with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're told that he went to watch and pray. Now that word watch has a special meaning. For many Jews, they wouldn't go to bed that night. They would stay up and keep watch. Remembering the exodus from Egypt, remember that night when the angel of death passed through or was to pass through every house. Do you think that the Jews, knowing that, all went to bed and slept soundly that night? You can imagine putting the little ones to bed who were too little to understand. And then mother and father and the older children, and particularly the eldest son, sitting up, almost holding their breath, keeping watch. I can imagine mother and father sitting beside the bedside of their eldest son, or sitting, holding their eldest son between them. Listening to the cries from the other houses, where the eldest sons died and watching to see God fulfilling his promise to keep them safe. There was no safety in Passover 
for the lamb. The lamb's life was given that the eldest son might be safe. But there was no safety for the lamb. And there was no safety for Jesus that night. As he went to observe that night of watching and prayed to his father, his father gave him another cup. The cup of his judgment and his wrath against sin. The bitterest cup, more bitter than we could ever imagine, it's the cup of hell itself. Can you see why Jesus was revulsed at the thought of drinking this cup? Now I choose the word God's wrath rather than God's anger. It's the same word. Wrath and anger are the same words. But there's a distinction between God's wrath and our anger. Mostly our anger comes because we're frustrated and we don't get our own way. You've all been in a supermarket where some tiny child has wanted its mother to buy it something and mother has said no and the screams of anger and frustration have rent the air and everybody in the supermarket has heard that child's frustration and anger because they didn't get their own way. But we're pretty much the same. We don't throw two-year-old tantrums but mostly we're angry because our children don't do what we want them or our spouse or another member of the family, our employer, our employees, some government bureaucracy doesn't do what we think they ought to and we get angry. And I believe that anger is at the root of much depression. Suppressed anger is the root of a lot of depression. Our anger is largely self-focused. God's wrath, on the other hand, is his reaction to sin. Because he's a holy God, he cannot look on sin. And this is a cup of consequence. Now, it's the consequence of your sin and my sin. And we understand consequences quite well. If you drive your car out onto the highway and you choose to drive at 100 k's an hour on the wrong side of the road, you'll soon see the consequences. And it's no use blaming the other person if you have an accident. And it's no use blaming the police for pulling you up and charging you. And it's no use blaming the judge for putting you in jail or giving you a hefty fine. Those are the consequences of your action. The cup of God's wrath is the consequence of our sin. And make no mistake, if we don't accept the fact that Jesus drank it for us, one day we will drink it to the very dregs. But there's something else about this cup. The writer of Psalm 75 describes it slightly differently. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. Now they added spices to wine to intensify the flavour. What would intensify the bitterness of that cup? Now you can speculate, 
But I like the commentary that says, what makes this cup even more bitter is the fact that God offers us his love, his compassion, his forgiveness, his loving kindness, his grace, and we throw it back in his face. So imagine Jesus being offered this cup, which is the consequence of all the sin in the world, but it's spiced with the flavour that his sacrifice will be rejected and thrown back at him. It's no wonder Jesus said, no, I don't want to drink that cup. If there's some other way, let this cup pass from me. But yet, after he had struggled in prayer three times, this was no easy decision for Jesus. He bowed to the Father's will and he took that cup from the Father's hand and it was not enough to taste it. It had to be drunk to the very last drop and he began to drink it from that moment onwards. And he drank it as he was betrayed. He drank it as he was arrested. He drank it through the mock unjust trials. He drank it through the scorn and the derision. He drank it through the crown of thorns. He drank it on the cross. Until at three o'clock in the afternoon he was able to say to the Father it's finished. I have drunk it to the very last drop. It demands a response. We cannot be indifferent to that. We can add to the spice by rejecting Jesus' sacrifice. Or we can be thankful and accept it for us and live our lives loving and serving him.